Well, who has the truth of God? How can you know who has the truth of God? So many in the world today make the claim that they have the truth of God. We have a world full of world religions. What do we make of the prevalence of Islam and Buddhism and Taoism and Hinduism and on and on we could go? Who has the truth of God really and how is it that you can know? What do we make of our own society, which is increasingly secular all the time? Perhaps even more confusing than that, what of those who would claim to know God and read the Bible? What of the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons? They read something like the Bible, they would claim. What about all the people in our own society who do make a profession of faith, but even the most casual observer can tell that their profession seems illegitimate because of their life? What do we make of this? Or what do we make of our own, our own lives? How can we know if we know God? Are we to look mainly at our activities, the outward things that we do? Perhaps we should look mainly at care for the poor or adoption or foster care or you fill in the blank with the way that you would evaluate perhaps. What about those who have the most highly developed theological positions? Is that evidence? of a knowledge of God? How can we know in a world full of people claiming to know God, how can we know who really does? Can they all be right? Well, our passage today that was just read actually comes to bear on that question. Jesus is teaching a crowd of people who do not know God what they should be doing if they did know God. You will remember that from last week, our story picks up in the middle of a dialogue between Jesus and a crowd of, you could call them, hungry people. They've just seen him feed 5,000 people with only five loaves of bread, and they're impressed. They're at least interested, and they want some more. But Jesus, as he always does, is turning that conversation increasingly towards the things that matter and away from merely bread. But the crowd as we'll see, doesn't want to go there with him. They came for bread. But we'll consider our text in four parts. The people respond, and then Jesus teaches. And the people respond again, and then Jesus teaches again. So first, the people object to Jesus' teaching about his having come down out of heaven. We begin in verse 41. The English there is usually rendered grumble or murmur or complain. Probably your version uses one of those. But don't miss what's happening. Jesus has just been telling them that he's been sent from God down to earth to give eternal life to people. And they have an objection. This is absurd. What was the cause of such grumbling? Well, if you remember that in chapter 6, Jesus has left Jerusalem in the south and gone back up north to Galilee where he had grown up. These people saw him grow up. And in verse 38 from last week, he's also told them that he has come down out of heaven. And so you can see their objection. We know his mom and dad. He grew up here. 
How can he say that he came down from heaven? We know him. We saw him as a little boy. But don't forget, they also just saw him feed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread. And now they think they have conflicting evidence. So they would say something like, we just saw him multiply five loaves into 5,000, and he's saying he came down from heaven. But on the other hand, we know his mom and dad. We know where he grew up. And so they're conflicted, and they have to choose, and they do choose. The text tells us that they choose to give greater weight to his local upbringing. But why is that? They had just seen him do this amazing miracle and multiply all this small amount of bread into 5,000 people. Why didn't they give more weight to that? And the issue is that they had already disbelieved before he told them about how he had come down from heaven. Jesus says so, gives it away in verse 26. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. They'd already disbelieved. And so, when Jesus tells them he's come down from heaven, of course, they object. But we should be careful that we don't miss the subtle distinction in the text between belief and unbelief. It's not as though the people aren't willing to give Jesus any recognition. It's already said, John's already told us, that they would have given him the title of the prophet from Deuteronomy 18, or the king, or rabbi. Any of those would do. The distinction is that unbelief doesn't necessarily mean an outright rejection of Jesus. Rather, unbelief can mean giving him high honors that aren't high enough. And what about us? What sort of honors do we give him? Do we ascribe to him all of the glory that's due to his name? Don't hesitate to give him the place of highest honor. Don't hesitate to believe every word that he said. And don't hesitate to build all of your life on him. All of his words are true. Well, now note that they're grumbling which is a proof of unbelief, isn't a new phenomenon. Observe briefly the pedigree, the pedigree of their grumbling. As you'll remember, many times in John's gospel, we have heard and seen that John is not writing in a vacuum. If we're familiar with our Bibles, the idea that the Jews in front of Jesus would grumble in the same context, that bread is coming down out of heaven should ring all sorts of bells for us. Our ears should perk up. We should have heard this before. Indeed, manna, even manna, has already been mentioned in our passage from last week. And we know that for Jesus, the bells are ringing. He recognizes the Old Testament pattern. We know so because of the way he responds. Now, the pattern that I mentioned from the Old Testament, especially considering considering Israel in the wilderness, goes like this. God provides for them, and the people grumble. God provides for them, and the people grumble. God provides for them, and the people grumble. And on and on the cycle goes. Miraculous provision through water from a rock, bread from heaven, quail, exodus out of Egypt, splitting the Red Sea. And the people grumble and grumble and grumble and grumble. It's a consistent pattern if you read through the narrative of the Old Testament. Jesus knew about this. 
He had read in places like Psalm 78 and Numbers 11 and Exodus 16 where the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. The idea is that no matter what sign that the Lord does, unbelief prevails. The signs and the wonders that he does for them in the wilderness are like turning on the lights for a blind man or like turning up the volume for a deaf man. It all falls on deaf ears. Or let me use another illustration. Imagine a farmer who set out to grow sweet potatoes. He does all the right things. He tills up the land. He plants the seeds, the correct depth into the soil and the correct distance from one another. He irrigates properly on schedule, just like he's supposed to, but nothing ever sprouts. He's checking his calendar. There should be buds coming up by now, but there is nothing. It's only later that the farmer finds out that the soil itself is deficient. The soil is the problem. The soil has a nutrient deficiency. Nothing can grow there. The farmer can cultivate all he wants, but nothing will grow in that soil. Unless something happens and changes in the soil, nothing will happen. Well, this was the problem with Israel and humankind in general, including you and I. No sign or wonder could grow in the soil. And what we see here coming up is that Jesus recognizes the Old Testament pattern in the Jews in front of him in John chapter 6 because he responds in a way that addresses their deficient soil. So he responds in verse 43. Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. Note that Jesus tells them not to grumble among themselves. They're not grumbling in isolation. They're grumbling together. This is significant. I'm sure you can picture the scene. Nobody is talking to Jesus. Nobody's asking him for help to understand. Rather, they're all talking quietly, buzzing amongst themselves. How can he say that? He came down from heaven. And it's for this that Jesus rebukes them. One commentator described their error, their unbelief, like this. So long as a man remains and is content to remain, confident of his own ability, without divine help, to assess experience and the meaning of experience, he cannot come to the Lord. He cannot believe. Only the Father can move him to this step with its incalculable and final results. Well, what about you and your faith? Perhaps, lately, you could identify with the grumbling crowd. Perhaps God has given you a set of circumstances that you find difficult to accept. You have at least two paths before you. You could grumble to yourself and to other people or, and I would commend to you, take your pain and even confusion perhaps to Jesus, to him, and ask him for help. This is what the crowds should have done. Go to him. Or perhaps, not a complaint about circumstances, you have doubts about the Bible certain doctrines that for you seem to be a point of contention. 
hard to swallow. Again, you could remain confident in your own ability without divine help to understand. Or you could take your doubts to Christ and he'll meet you there. He'll be tender with you there. He'll teach you there. Well, the crowd in front of Christ is still certain that they can figure this out on their own, and so they grumble amongst themselves. Beloved, do you depend upon, depend upon divine revelation to help you understand and apply the scriptures? When was the last time you found yourself on your knees before God, begging him to help you understand what you read and to apply it to your life? If you're a Christian, have you been forgetting lately that you have the Holy Spirit within you, the revealer of all truth? We should ask him for help. We should depend on him. Well, as Jesus continues, he both rebukes the crowd, as we've read, but he also gives his people great reason for hope. So he teaches in verse 44 to 47 that the Old Testament promises of God to overcome unbelief, think deficient soil, have arrived in him and in his ministry as the Messiah. Look there in verse 44. He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus recognizes their unbelief because of their grumbling. And he now teaches how God has promised and planned to give sight to the blind to help the deaf to hear, to overcome unbelief, to put nutrients in the soil. So he first lays down his teaching in verse 44, and then in verse 45, 45, he quotes the Old Testament, a promise to support his teaching. So look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's a startling statement, and Jesus means for it to be so. Let me use an illustration to help us understand why he says it the way that he says it, and therefore what he's saying. If you imagine that Jesus walks you up to an immaculately set table with platters and glasses and heaps and heaps of steaming food, but on the middle of the table there's a single wine glass, and it's that wine glass that he, in the end, wants to draw your attention to. He could say, ignore the food, Look at the wine glass. It's the point. But in order to help you, say he takes his arm and he just swipes every bit of it all onto the ground, wine glass included. All of it. And then he walks over to the pile of food rubble and he grabs the wine glass and he puts it back on the table and then tells you, this is the point. This is what I want to emphasize and draw your attention to. That's what he's doing when he says this. No one can come to me except for one way. He's drawing your attention to the single exception, the only way that a person can come to him. There is only one way, and it's when the Father who sent him draws that person. In the context of deficient soil and blindness and hardness of heart and unbelief, that makes sense. Of course the only way a person can come to Christ is by the supernatural activity of God to draw a person, to change the heart, and to put nutrients into the soil. That's his teaching. 
And he explains it by a quotation from the Old Testament. But what I've just said for many people is a difficult pill to swallow. The sovereignty of God in salvation. And in a short sermon like today's, there's no way to handle all of the objections. But there is one that I think is worth speaking. Nowhere in scripture does the necessity that I've just been describing of the sovereignty of God in changing a human heart for a person to come to God, that's never pictured as though there are people who would love to come to him, but they just can't because God won't draw them. That's never the picture. Rather, the situation is that all human beings voluntarily and willfully are running away from God as fast as they can. And in that context, God draws them. He says, I will take those who want nothing to do with me and bring them back. This is the way that the sovereignty of God works. And as an application, considering God's sovereignty in our conversion, we should model the Apostle Paul, who so often drew his doctrine from the teaching of Christ. So often he's reminding the churches in his letters of the sovereign purpose of God in their salvation. He tells them repeatedly. It's always towards the beginning of the letter and he talks about God's sovereign purpose, his predestining love. Well, we should model this with each other. We need to be told. We need to be told of God's sovereign love in calling us out of darkness and giving us hope in Christ together. You should consider saying so to your spouse, or your believing children, or another member of the church. Use that for each other's encouragement. Well, back to Israel's pedigree and God's promise. Had he made, can you think up any promises in the Old Testament to change the unbelieving heart, to rescue them from this dull, deficient soil? Well, as I said, Jesus supports his teaching by quoting from the Old Testament. It comes from Isaiah 54, verse 13. Look in verse 45. Jesus says, It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught of God. As I said, he uses this verse to explain why he had said what he said in verse 44. Well, in order to understand what he means, we need to consider the context of the whole book of Isaiah. Just briefly, a major theme in the beginning of Isaiah prior to chapter 54 is, as we've been talking about, the blindness of human beings, especially Israel. The deafness of their ears, their unbelief, the way that they just won't believe, and even in God's judgment, cannot believe. They're blind. But Isaiah also reveals God's promises to overcome it. And Jesus quotes one of these very promises that you see in verse 45, and he teaches that Isaiah's prophecy is being fulfilled in himself now that he has come and in his ministry as the Messiah. When God overcomes unbelief, Jesus says, he does so through himself, the Messiah. Well, a little more on the background in Isaiah. The word taught, they shall all be taught of God, is a rare word. It only occurs four times in the whole book of Isaiah. One of those times is just a reference to the disciples, the taught ones of Isaiah. The second one is in the verse that Jesus quotes. That leaves two more. Those are both found four chapters earlier in Isaiah 50, 
where it's not the people who will be taught, but the servant of the Lord himself will be taught of the Lord. Three chapters after that, in Isaiah 53, you have the suffering servant. So in chapter, chapter 50, the servant is listening to God. He's being taught. And in chapter 53, the servant is now suffering, doing the will of his teacher. He's giving up himself for the sins of his people as he was taught. And one chapter later, we have the verse that Jesus quotes. And he says, they will be taught by God. So by quoting Isaiah 54, 13, the verse in our text, Jesus would be saying something like this. I am the servant of the Lord. I listen and do all his will. So I will suffer for my people. God will draw them to me and overcome their hard hearts in his new covenant. In fact, everyone whom God teaches comes to me as Savior. But you, crowd, your grumbling at me is proof positive that you have not been taught by God. Because otherwise, you would come. Well, the talk of teaching raises a question about how, how it is that God teaches. And there's so much that could be said. We'll mention only one thing to try and draw on Jesus' words. Jesus does say that the Father draws people, equating it with teaching. And this refers, as we've said, to the hidden and sovereign work of God that we can't see in the human heart when he draws men to Christ. When God draws, Jesus says, people come to him. Well, in addition, Jesus gives a nuance, an explanation in verse 46. He says, not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. This one has seen the Father. The teaching that God does, the drawing, Jesus says, does not imply some kind of direct access into the presence of the Father that bypasses the Son. No, no. If you've been taught by God, rather, you'll come to Christ. We should also embrace the sovereignty of God not only an encouragement for each other, but as, as hope for moving outward, for evangelism. Evangelism is a lot like that. I know you feel it. It's like sowing into a field. You, maybe you put the seed in and you water, but you can't give the growth. We know that feeling. But God, as, as Jesus tells us, has made promises to overcome unbelief. He is giving a people to the Son. He is drawing people to him. So we should pray. We should pray and ask God to do that work in the hearts of our friends, our children, our co-workers, and all the rest. Let this text move you to prayer that God will give the growth and draw. In verse 47, Jesus makes a transition. He's going to connect God's drawing that we've just been talking about with the bread of life. He's circling back now to the bread of life. And the link that connects God's drawing and the bread is faith. Put simply, coming to Christ, believing in him, is the same as eating the bread. Note verse 47 and 48 side by side. In verse 47, it's those who believe who have life. In verse 48, it's those who eat who have life. Faith is the means 
to eternal life. And Jesus illustrates faith with the idea of eating. And I'm, I'm laboring it because we need to hang on to this. We need to be clear on this because Jesus is about to advance the metaphor. I don't know if you listen when Ava read the text for us, but the metaphor is getting ready to change. Faith in Christ is the means to eternal life. Jesus has made it plain. Well, the metaphor does get advanced in verse 49 to 51. Jesus teaches that eternal life only comes from true bread. True bread. You ask, what does that mean? Well, he makes a contrast with manna, which was referenced in last week's sermon. They had referenced it, the people had, the crowd. And he contrasts it. The manna, he says, was physical or literal bread. Think loaf of bread, a small wafer. And it was eaten physically, and it gave physical bodily life until you died. This is the kind of food that we're used to. It's what you ate this morning. Can't give you life forever. It's good for a time. But in all those same ways, the bread of life, Christ himself, he contrasts and says, is superior because the bread is Christ himself. It's eaten by faith and it gives eternal life, not bodily life. And if you eat it, you'll live forever. So the appetite of the crowd is too small. They want more manna. They want more physical bread. They'd be satisfied just with another round of a full stomach. And Jesus is offering them something infinitely better. Eternal life himself is before them to be had. But they're grumbling. And Jesus is going, as I said, to push things, push the metaphor further. You can see it in verse 51. He says, The bread also, which I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. The bread is my flesh. And so, our third point, the people object again. They really don't like that. The English versions translate their response a few ways. Here they are. The NASB renders, they argue, argued. The ESV has disputed. The NIV, they get worse here, says argue sharply. And the New King James, quarreled. You could also render it fight or war. And my aim is not to try and choose one of those translations, but just to point out that this is an escalated response compared to grumbling, which they were doing before. Now things are getting heated. They're angry. They're fighting. They're quarreling. They can't stand this. He's gone too far. You can picture an angry crowd. They're mad. And Jesus knows that they'll respond this way. He knows their unbelief. He's already commented on it. And he still lays down the teaching. He does it anyway because he has a truth to teach. He doesn't receive glory from men. His words are the words of life. And so he's pressing on, laying down the truth, despite their objection. We're going to consider his response, where he unpacks the idea of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. But before we do, we need to pause and settle two issues related to that idea, eating flesh and drinking blood. The first issue is, is Jesus speaking literally or metaphorically? These are hard words if he's speaking literally. 
And the second issue is, is Jesus making a reference to the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper. Well, the first issue is Jesus being literal or metaphorical about eating flesh and drinking blood. Now, most of you may assume that he's speaking metaphorically, but that's a dangerous way to read the Bible, is making assumptions. You should ask, are there reasons in the text itself that would cause you to believe he's speaking literally or metaphorically? And there are, I'll name two, and they make it crystal clear that he's speaking metaphorically. The first, and briefly, is that Jesus has already equated eating with believing, as I mentioned, repeatedly in this chapter. Verse 29, 35, 36, 40, and 47. Eating is a metaphor for believing. But second, and and I hope this point will teach us how to read our Bibles. The overwhelming pattern in the book of John in chapters 1 through 6 goes like this. In chapter 2, the Jews, to the Jews at Passover, Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. They think he's speaking of the physical temple that they're in. In chapter 3 to Nicodemus, Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, as you know, gets all bent out of shape, thinking that a man can't go back into his mother's womb and be born a second time. He's not speaking literally. In chapter 4 to the Samaritan woman, he says, if you knew, he would have given you living water. And she thinks he's asking about physical water and asks him for it. Let me have that. In chapter 4 again to the disciples, he says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And they start to talk amongst themselves saying, who brought him food? They think he means literal, physical food. And in our chapter from last week, verse 32 through 34, to the same crowd he's talking to now, he says, the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And just like the Samaritan woman, they think we want some of that bread, thinking he's talking about physical bread. And at this point, what should you, the reader, expect when another group of people hear his metaphor and stumble misinterpreting it as something literal? We know what we should expect. The pattern is overwhelming. There are reasons in the text for understanding his words as metaphor. Well, I hope having settled that, we can move on to understanding the meaning of the metaphor, what he's really teaching. But before we do, the second issue, is Jesus making a reference here to the Lord's Supper? Is that the right application of what he means? Well, I won't take much time here, but the answer is no. All the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, contain what you might call the inaugural Lord's Supper. They all share at least four elements in common. That night took place in Jerusalem. It was the night before Jesus died. It was with the 12 disciples. And there Jesus instructs them to continually celebrate the supper until he comes. He gives them the instructions, do this. But in our passage, none of those hold true. Jesus is in Galilee, not in Jerusalem. It's well before the night that Jesus died. He's talking to a crowd of Jews in a synagogue, as you can read in the last verse of our passage, not to the 12 disciples, and he gives no instructions that they're to continue to do this. So it's probably better to understand that our text is not pointing to the Lord's Supper, but to the cross. Both the Lord's Supper and our text point ahead to the cross that's coming, but they don't point to themselves. 
So Jesus is speaking metaphorically, not literally, and he's not talking about the Lord's Supper. He's talking about the cross. And now we're prepared to hear his teaching. He answers the angry crowd. And instead of backpedaling in the midst of their anger, he confirms his teaching. He says it negatively. He says it positively. He explains it. He reinforces it. He's pressing it home. And he lays down what one commentator called an inviolable principle. An inviolable principle. It means there are no exceptions. You can look at his words. If you don't eat and drink, you don't have life. But everyone who eats and drinks, they all have life. And Jesus will raise them all up on the last day. Jesus is clear. There is no wiggle room. But what is the eating and drinking that he lays down in such certain terms. Let's consider eating his flesh and drinking his blood. It's a metaphor, but the language is still surprising or perhaps shocking. Drinking blood was certainly something forbidden in the Old Testament. So it is shocking language. But I don't want us to stumble over the metaphor. The content of what he's communicating is most wonderful. It's amazing. Remember that John 6 is just one chapter in the whole gospel of John. Remember that John tells us his reason for writing. He says that it's so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you would have life in his name. Remember that when John describes the life and ministry of Christ, like chapter 6, he's preparing you for the end of his story. He's preparing you, leading you toward the end of the book. By speaking of giving his own flesh and blood for his people, Jesus is speaking of his gospel work. There, hanging on the cross, his flesh would be destroyed. His blood, as he said, would drip down from his head and his hands and his side and his feet. So he says, the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is the meaning of the metaphor. He's going to give himself to his people, but as the crucified and risen Savior. As he hung on the cross, he did so as the bread that God had sent to come down out of heaven and give eternal life to the world. This is our Savior. So that when you eat or believe, you have eternal life, not death. Life himself became subjected to death. And after three days, he rose again from the dead. And the scripture calls him the first fruits from among the dead. That means He's first, more will follow. He's going to raise up, as he says four times in chapter 6, all his people who have his life in themselves up on the last day. But we should note that there's a certain kind of way that Jesus gives eternal life to his people. Look in verse 56. He says that the one who eats and drinks remains in him remains. That's the new word. That's different than what he's been saying. And they 
abide or remain, pardon me, in him. But he says more than this. He actually explains the way that eternal life is given to his people. We get to hear how it is that we get eternal life as his believing people. Consider that there's more than one kind of giving. There's the sort of giving in which the giver, upon giving, no longer has the thing given. That's why we struggle with giving. We don't want to give because we don't want to lose what we have. But this is a different sort of giving that Jesus is speaking about. He doesn't give eternal life to his people as an abstract concept from afar. That's not what he, that's not what he says. When he gives eternal life to his people, he says it's more like eating. He gives himself to you, to his people, as life to be in you, to remain in you. You abide in him, he abides in you, speaking of union with him, but now he's in you. Of course, we all know after you eat something, it's in you. We're used to that. That's the metaphor. It goes deep into the center of you and your, your body begins to break it down and extract the nutrients to provide health and energy and all the things needed for life for the rest of your body. And this is what Jesus means. This is how he describes faith or coming to Christ or eating. Faith is like eating, like receiving all of Christ for all of you. And then he says these, these kind of mysterious words that he already referenced, this is a compressed form of what he's already referenced in chapter five. The living father has life in himself and then gives life to be in the son and then the son who has life becomes in his people. If life is in Christ and Christ is in you, then life, eternal life is in you. And of course you'll be raised up on the last day. So when Christ gives you his life, he loses nothing. It's not that kind of giving, but you get all of him forever. Friends, I don't know if all of you have come to, come to him, if you've trusted him, approached him, but you should. You should. Oh. A Christian from long ago said that faith is the first act of the soul in coming to Jesus. It's step A. It's the first thing. So children, little children, older children, <laughs> you hear from mom and dad or from wherever, teachers, all the rest, lots of very good, important things from the Bible and otherwise, and that's good. You should listen. That's, that's a gift of God. But let me tell you the first step, point A, the beginning. When you hear about Jesus, trust him. That's what he means when he says, come to me. Trust him. What he says is true, and he'll do all the things he said he'll do. Well, finally, Jesus concludes in verse 58. He sums up the whole conversation and he revisits both of the objections of the crowd. So he says, this is the bread 
Everything I've just been saying, this is how it is. This is the bread. This is the way it works. This is the truth. So he answers their first objection, and he says, if you will, I have indeed come down from heaven. You objected, but it is so. God sent me. You are mistaken. If God had taught you, you would come to me, since I am the bread that he gave. And he answers their second objection. And this bread, this, as he calls it, flesh and blood, is true food, true drink. And if you don't eat and drink, you don't have life. But if you do eat and drink, if you come to him, you do have eternal life because you have Christ who is life remaining within you. That's his teaching from John 6. Well, who has the truth of God and how can you know? Jesus' answer in John 6 is that everyone who is truly taught of God proves it by coming to the one that he sent. You could put it negatively and you could say, anyone who hasn't come to the Son hasn't been taught by God. Certainly this rules out, as you can imagine, every other major religion, pardon me, who reject the one that God sent. It also rules out those who would distort the identity of the one that God sent, like the Jehovah's Witness or the Mormon. But how are we to look, perhaps, at other, other people who we want to come to faith, like our children or co-workers or any of these other people? Well, Jesus teaches us that the chief mark that God is at work in those people is not their external obedience or their words or their theology or what they understand about Jesus. But most importantly, do they come to Christ? Is it Jesus himself, not his religion, if you will, but, but Christ, Jesus, that they're pursuing? And if you pursue him, you'll pursue all the things that he loves, like his people and his word and everything else. But to bring it all the way home, what about you and me? What about our church? We will know, according to Jesus, that God is truly at work insofar as we cannot get enough of Christ. When we're a people continually feasting on him as the risen Savior, certainly there, God is working among us.